Several weeks ago on the podcast, we began the fictional case study of Tim and Emily. And although this is a fictional case study, uh, the realities that we're handling here are really all too real and uh, do occur within marriages. And it is wise for us to begin thinking carefully through them together in this podcast. Uh, just a reminder about the details of the case. We'll take some time to review here. So Tim and Emily come from a church across town, and they've asked you to meet with them because of some help that you offered their friend several months ago. They're coming because of a persistent problem they've had in their marriage. They explain that in the six years of marriage, uh, Tim has always had a short fuse and that he regularly loses it when he comes home from work. Uh, which fills the evenings with tense communication. Now, just a reminder that those phrases, short fuse, loses it, those are phrases that they both agree upon together to describe Tim's manner and his deportment and his behavior at home. But we want to press into those because they're not, they're not biblical phrases. Uh, they're, they're colloquial phrases that describe and in some cases mask or obscure uh, behavior that is profoundly sinful, but we want to find scriptural language for it so we can locate it within the uh, the world of God's word. So uh, you want to file phrases like that away and find biblical vocabulary for them so that you can address them scripturally. Well, let's continue. So their, their weeks are filled with arguments about everything from dinner being ready on time to whether they should have kids. Tim thinks Emily is a good wife and admits that the problems are his fault, but he, he just doesn't know how to maintain control. Well, about a year ago, Tim went berserk, uh, screaming at Emily, kicking the kitchen table, throwing plates on the floor in response to Emily's complaint that he came home late without calling. Now, Emily was always uncomfortable with Tim's previous pattern of outbursts, but this was different, and she was truly scared, and Tim was too. And in tears, she told Tim that something had to change. Well, Tim talked to his pastor, who uh, in turn told him that he needed to seek a professional therapist. And Tim followed the advice and made an appointment with a Christian counselor whom his pastor had recommended. And Tim met with the therapist for a few sessions who ultimately recommended that he see a psychiatrist for medical care. So notice the referrals here from the pastor to the Christian counselor to the psychiatrist for medical care, a medical intervention. When Tim met with the psychiatrist, he was told that he had bipolar disorder and began to take medications prescribed by the physician. Tim was initially discouraged to learn that he had a disease that would likely last his entire life. And by the way, we'll press into some details here. Let's, for the sake of argument, uh, say that Tim was diagnosed by the psychiatrist with bipolar two as, to bi as opposed to bipolar one. Uh, bipolar one uh, can have some physiological uh, hardwiring elements to it uh, that would be um, more appropriate to apply disease language to. Bipolar 2, much less so, and is found within the normal garden variety range of uh, both anxiety and depression, great highs and, and great lows, including intense bursts of anger. And uh, that's where Tim is at. Let's, let's say that the psychiatrist diagnoses him with bipolar 2. Well, Tim was initially discouraged, uh, again, to learn that he had a, a disease, or as he understood it, that would last his entire life, but he was thankful to have a plan to deal with the problem. Well, Emily was also encouraged that there was not only something they could do. Well, their encouragement quickly gave way, however, when after several months on the medication, Tim had really still not changed. And by the way, we, we probably ought to expect such. Uh, the fact of the matter is that if you are sitting on a six-penny nail, 
I can pump you with enough medication so that you will no longer feel that nail in your rear end. Uh, that's one way to approach this. <laughs> Another way to approach the problem is to address the actual issue, not the symptoms, but the actual issue, which is the nail. And I think, uh, especially in the case of uh, a multiplicity of medications with bipolar 2, that's what we're dealing with. We want to address the issue. In other words, the heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. And though the medications have masked in some cases or dulled some of the symptoms, the fact of the matter is that Tim is not changing because the heart of the matter is that his heart is the matter. So his temperament is milder with the medication. And uh, in general, the loss of control, though, is still there and screaming is still present. And if it were a medical intervention that would uh, make all of this go away, then it would make sense. But it appears that we have a spiritual issue that a medical intervention is now dealing with. So at this point, uh, Emily begins to regret that she's even married Tim. And, and all the arguments uh, together with their couple's lack of children is taking its toll on Emily. And she realizes she's in a marriage that she just doesn't want to be in. And she doesn't think she has any options. Well, last week, Tim went completely crazy. Again, that's her phrase, completely crazy. And I think it's pretty justified colloquial language here. Uh, Emily suggested uh, on a Saturday morning that Tim should cut the grass because he hadn't done it the week before. Tim did more than scream and throw things uh, in response at this time. He yelled and he became even more worked up and he took his phone and he threw it at Emily and it missed her and it broke a hole in the wall. And, and at that point, they both knew that they hadn't seen this behavior quite at this level from him, and he had crossed a serious line. Well, Emily said that she couldn't take it anymore and wanted out of the marriage. She told him that if something didn't change very quickly, she was going to leave. Uh, this is when he reached out to a friend who recommended you. So Tim and Emily both profess faith in Christ, and they relate their testimonies of conversion to their teen years both are terribly discouraged. Uh, Tim doesn't know how to treat Emily better since he is, as he thinks, plagued by this disease. And Emily loves Tim and would like their marriage to work, but she is worn out for lack of change. She feels badly about wanting to leave, but she also knows that he has an illness, or again, that's the language that they've been handed. And so she is increasingly convinced that God is telling her to divorce Tim. And that is where we want to pick things up today. Um, over the last several weeks, we have pondered uh, a few different approaches to this. The, the first thing is that we wanted to establish how to uh, address Tim and Emily. Do we address them as believers? Do we address them as unbelievers? Is one a believer and, and the other one not a believer with an unyoked, equally yoked marriage? Well, we walked through that a, a couple of weeks ago and we established, uh, let's establish for the sake of argument that Tim and Emily are both both believers. In the second podcast in this series, then, we address the concept of uh, psychiatric labels and uh, 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 medications and, and so on, how to think through some of these things. Last time in the podcast, what we took a look at was the first instinct of, of any Christian couple as well as any Christian pastor, which is reconciliation, which is renewal, recovery, repentance in the relationship. Uh, we want to see this marriage healed. And so we began to look forward as to what uh, Tim's role in change is and what Emily's role in change is. 
But we mentioned last week a couple of things that we want to think through on their own. They really deserve their own podcast. And that would be the question of abuse or oppression, mainly thinking through this relative to Tim and how to approach him as a husband. And then the second question is, given the degree of the abuse or the the pitch, the level of the depression, what uh, reasonable expectations does Emily have, um, particularly what options does she have relative to a biblical divorce? These are, these are huge questions and they deserve their own consideration. So let's first think through the issue of abuse. Now, of course, you pull out your Bible Rolodex and you look under A for abuse and you're just not going to see that word. Um, by the way, if you pull out your Bible Rolodex, you're not going to see the word Trinity or even the word Bible for that matter. So we want to press a little bit deeper and think about biblical language for abuse. And, and that would be an O word. Uh, the word is oppression. Abusers in the Bible are oppressors. The abused are the oppressed and then abuse is oppression. Well, that key if you put that in the lock of Holy Scripture, opens up all kinds of passages uh, that help us to think through these things. And uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 is a good place to start. Um, oppression is, is real, and we should make every effort we can to engage it wisely. Uh, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 3, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was none to comfort them. And I thought the dead, the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living that are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Now, we want to think through this very carefully. Um, this is not some hashtag me too Twitter post. Uh, this is not some uh, woke upset the patriarchy kind of document. This is God's word. And this is Solomon of all people. Talk about a manipulator. Talk about an abuser. Solomon himself says this about oppression. And so we want to be clear what we are talking about when the Bible discusses oppression. Uh, some of these thoughts come from a biblical counselor by the name of Chris Moles from his PeaceWorks podcast. And I highly recommend Chris. Uh, these are what is known as the four pillars of abuse. And when we think scripturally and practically, here's what we wanna be thinking about in terms of oppression, or we'll switch over to the language of abuse. What, what is this? What's going on in Tim, uh, Tim and Emily's marriage? Well, the first pillar is an abuse of power, position, or authority. An, abu an abuse of power, position, or authority. That is, an oppressor uses their own strength, rank, or opportunity in order to exploit another for selfish purposes. That's the first pillar. The second pillar is a level of objectification, a level of objectification. That is the oppressed is not regarded as a person made in the image of God and therefore bearing worth and dignity befitting an image bearer, but rather that person is objectified. They are degraded to the status of a mere object so that the oppressor is able to proceed as they please. The third pillar is forced submission forced submission. Now, submission, as we looked at it in last week's podcast, is a beautiful thing. 
It's a beautiful thing. Submission from us to the Lord is beautiful. Uh, Submission from believers to one another is beautiful. Submission from wives to husbands is beautiful. From children to parents, from citizens to their government, from employees to employers. Submission is good and godly. Uh, From Christ to his Father, it is good and godly and right. Submission is wonderful, so long as it's not forced. In other words, the onus of submission is always on the one that God calls to submit. Us to the Lord, believers to one another, wives to husbands, children to parents, citizens to government, employees to employers. Well, finally, after forced submission, finally, the fourth pillar is violence or abuse with impunity violence or abuse with impunity. In other words, the oppressor exploits, takes, hurts, or kills the oppressed with liberty, freedom, security to continue to do so at will. I'll say that again because it was a mouthful. The final pillar is violence or abuse with impunity, which means the abuser gets to exploit, take, hurt, kill the oppressed with liberty and freedom uh, and the security to continue doing so. Now, we want to think carefully through the elements of abuse here. Solomon describes the abused or the oppressed as someone who wishes that they were already dead. And in fact, if they had never been born, it would be better. And then we want to think through especially that last pillar. Uh, The oppressor exploits, takes, hurts, or kills with liberty and freedom and security to continue doing so. My point in mentioning this is that abuse or oppression, it's not a toggle switch. It's more like a dimmer switch. In other words, there are varying degrees of abuse and varying degrees of oppression from um, a a sideways comment to a more manipulative word uh, to rattling the dishes around the kitchen to actually presenting physical harm to someone and then more than physical harm, uh, actually Uh, presenting a a violent or perhaps even a deadly force. Well, that's a a range of abuse, and we want to be thoughtful and wise uh, as to how we approach this. And I would say that the kind of abuse that we've seen cataloged began quite benign and has increased with enough um, sharpness and clarity that we can't ignore it anymore, Uh, so much so that Emily, who is reluctant to even talk about divorce, is willing to put the option on the table. Now, we want to think through domestic abuse just a little bit, and I want to offer um, a biblical category here for us, and that would be the relationship of David and Bathsheba. Now, when you read 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and you ponder what we blithely refer to as David and Bathsheba's adultery, Um, it should occur to us, especially in our day and age, that this arrangement was very likely far from consensual. In fact, if you read back through 2 Samuel 11, what you'll find are all four pillars of domestic abuse right there. And all four of them are propping up David's pursuit of Bathsheba. And what's more, in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan doesn't call Bathsheba to account. 
Nathan doesn't seek to apply the Mosaic penalty of adultery in her case. No, Nathan calls David out for abusing his position, for objectifying another man's wife, for forcing her into submission by a raw act of authority, and then for committing violence with impunity through raping an Israelite woman and having her husband murdered on the field of battle. Now, you might think, wait a minute, that the text doesn't say that he raped her. No, no, it doesn't. But think about it for five seconds. David saw Bathsheba. She didn't see him. David sent for her. She didn't come to see him. David took advantage of a married woman while her husband was away. You say, well, she could have easily resisted him. My answer would be, are you sure about that? How? At what personal cost? With what defenses? This man is the king of Israel. And I'll tell you what, it it makes the words of Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, all the more powerful when we read, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. And I'll tell you what, if a pastor And especially in this case, if I'm going to be counseling Emily one-on-one, I want one of her dear Christian uh, women friends in the room right alongside her to counsel her. If Tim is not and comforting her, if Tim is not comforting her, then I want a woman right in the mix to, to grab onto her and hang onto her and hug her right in the middle of our counseling sessions. On the side of the oppressors then is power. Now this happens too. Pastors, frequently, not maliciously, but frequently because they have the good and right instinct to defend male leadership in the home, their first instinct is to defend authority structure in the home and unwittingly often to continue to create the environment for abuse to flourish. And that's just what it is. Um, Complementarianism, biblical complementarianism is not given to abuse in its scriptural application. It has to be a twisting of it. Uh, In other words, Genesis 3 is what we're talking about here, not Genesis 1 to 2. Genesis 1 to 2 is is the beautiful dance of, of authority and submission in the marriage. Genesis 3 is life east of Eden and everything upside down. And that is what we're seeing in this marriage. So we want to be careful both to provide comfort for Emily as she's processing what's going on and an accountability for Tim because on his side is power. And if a pastor swoops in to defend Tim without hearing Emily out, we are going to compound the problem like crazy. Now, to turn to the words of Jim Neuheiser in his wonderful book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, One of the most difficult situations that a leader may face is one spouse's uh, relentless verbal or psychological abuse of another. And we want to think through uh, how this works out. Um, And as we're gathering data and, and of course uh, this uh, psychological and verbal abuse can, can amount to physical abuse as well. And we want to think through that carefully. There can be sometimes plenty of blame to go around. Uh, For instance, Jim Neuheiser tells the story that in one case, uh, there was a woman that came to him who was sporting a black eye. And he asked the husband, how did your wife get the black eye? And the husband said, it happened when I threw my cell phone at her. At that point, the wife chimed in, 
That was right after I tried to run him over in the car and broke his leg, right? So it is important to hear all sides when an accusation of abuse is made. Proverbs 18, 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Now, in this case, we haven't seen, we have no reason to believe, and it doesn't sound like Tim would tell us otherwise, that Emily has contributed uh, anything in terms of oppressive behavior, uh, coercive control, abusive, manipulative, verbal or physical abuse. So this is, this is squarely on Tim in terms of abuse. So the first instinct we want to have is to protect the victims of abuse. Psalm 10, verses 17 and 18. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4 protect the victims of abuse. This might mean getting Emily out of the house for a period of time uh, in the interest of safety while there's a period of biblical counseling. There's no children involved yet, and so things are a little cleaner and simpler in terms of if a separation needed to occur. Secondly, of course, there are degrees of abuse. We've, we've talked about this. There is emotional manipulation. There are words, and there are varying kinds of words from uh, just sort of mild, more again, benign vocabulary to much more harsh verbal, um, violent language, uh, and so on. So we want to be uh, thoughtful about how we think about degrees of abuse. And then finally, the question, can a victim of abuse file for divorce? Well, it's an incredibly important issue. Now, it is my studied uh, conviction that over the years of both uh, preaching and studying theology and applying it practically in the life of the local church, that <clears throat> while uh, no one is ever commanded to divorce another person, that there are concessions to divorce. Uh, they, they ought to be only used in the event that they absolutely must be. One concession for divorce would be uh, the presence of unrepentant, persistent adultery in a marriage. And then another, and that would be Matthew 5, of course, Matthew 19. And then another example of a concession, not a command, but a concession for divorce in the context of a marriage would be abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And that's 1 Corinthians 7. Now, we want to think carefully through how abuse of or coercive control might uh, figure into Emily's processing of her phrase that God is telling me to divorce Tim. Well, is he? Is that possible? Does she have such freedom in Christ? Again, it's not a solution that any pastor and certainly I would ever want to stampede to with haste. But it's one that after careful, sober, thoughtful, deliberate, wise reflection and contemplation within the context of godly Christian relationships, including uh, Tim and Emily's pastor, uh, elders at the church, um, wise, godly counsel, it's a conviction that might be arrived at given uh, some particular scriptural understanding here. So again, back to the words of Jim Neuheiser as he writes, many believe that severe cases of abuse qualify under the category of abandonment of the marriage, reasoning that if the violent spouse isn't willing to live at peace with the believer, he or she is effectively causing a separation by forcing the innocent spouse to leave. According to Paul, God has called us to peace, 1 Corinthians 7, 15b. An author, one author writes, we emphasize once more that abuse is a form of desertion 
Uh, constructive desertion occurs when one partner's evil, evil conduct ends the marriage because it causes the other partner to leave. So notice this is uh, really abandonment from the other side. Constructive desertion occurs when one person's evil conduct uh, ends the marriage because it causes the other partner to leave. Well, of course, and, and I hope this ought to be your instinct, uh, one danger of opening the door to this is that it could broaden the grounds for divorce uh, to anything that a supposed victim considers to be abusive. Again, uh, uh, Jim Neuheiser goes on to write, given that we are all sinners who are prone to sinful anger expressed through sinful words and actions, virtually every marriage could be ended on these grounds. On the other hand, it may be there are extreme cases in which abuse has broken the marriage beyond repair. Consider uh, the following five rapid fire case studies here and see uh, uh, how you might process them in light of 1 Corinthians 7.15. Imagine a husband who has repeatedly abused the children physically and sexually, but somehow has escaped prison. Well, Child Protective Services, uh, CPS, uh, has told the mother that if she lets the husband back into her house, the children will be taken away from her. What do you do? Or another case study, imagine that the wife has engaged in a long-term pattern of verbal and physical abuse against her husband. Now, remember that the traffic sometimes goes the other way. Not often, but sometimes it goes the other way. Abuse from a wife to a husband. I mean, she won't let him sleep. She's constantly yelling at him. She frequently hits him. And the children are traumatized seeing their parents this way. She's gone to counselors, but she hasn't changed. And this has been going on for more than 10 years. And they're in your church and they want to know what they should do. What do you tell them? Or third, the husband is constantly full of rage and has beaten his wife several times. Once, uh, when he pushed her down, she broke her wrist, but she told the doctors that she had only fallen. Finally, one night, he came home drunk and beat her so badly that both of her eyes were blackened and her nose was broken. And she wants to know how much more of this she is supposed to take. Or... Think about a case where the husband, after being arrested for beating his wife and burning her with a cigarette and stabbing her in the arm with a knife, has been sentenced to several years in prison. Should she consider herself abandoned? What if he doesn't make parole? What if it's 15 years, 25 years, 35 years? Does she have grounds for divorce? Or fifth, imagine the wife attempted to kill her husband and her children with a knife in a fit of anger. Well, one alternative in such cases of abuse would be to live separately and safely while hoping that the Lord would bring peace to abusive spouses in repentance. That would be 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. And uh, again, the words of Jim Neuheiser, he says, I would not, however, support the church's exercising discipline against victims who, after a long period of significant abuse with no indication of true repentance on the part of the abusers, chose to regard themselves as abandoned or filed for divorce. And, and I would agree with that as well. I would strongly advise people considering such a decision to work closely with church leaders, evaluating their options biblically. In the words of Jim Neuheiser, I'll say one final summary here. Verbal, physical, and emotional types of abuse are contrary to God's design for marriage, which is supposed to uh, reflect love and grace, which is podcast three in this uh, series, by the way. Love and grace instead of anger and hatred. Victims of abuse have a right to protect their own lives and the lives of their children. That's true. 
And church leaders should carefully investigate claims of abuse and should be faithful to protect the innocent, which may sometimes involve sheltering or calling the authorities. And of course, here's the million dollar question that we need to address carefully. While some cases of abuse may equate to abandonment by an unbeliever, and by the way, I would say that all five of those fictional case studies do equate to abandonment by an unbeliever. No matter what the abusive spouse in this case says, they have demonstrated by their unrepentance, as they, they could have easily gone through church discipline by that point, um, being addressed by one person in private, bringing one or two others along, their name going to the church membership, and at that point, them being cast out of the fellowship. You treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. If they live like an unbeliever, they should be treated and considered to be, in terms of identity, an unbeliever. So some cases of abuse may equate to abandonment by an unbeliever. Every effort should be made to rescue the marriage. Every effort should be made to rescue the marriage. We should not throw the towel in faster than we ought to. And at the same time, great caution should be exercised before granting approval to divorce. At the same time, to answer Emily's question, could there be approval for divorce? Yes, there could be in the context of 1 Corinthians 7, 15. And we want to be careful before we would ever uh, play that card, but it is one that we hold in our hand. And we do for the glory of God, for the good and the flourishing of those that we counsel, and for the ingathering and the upbuilding of the church. Grace and peace.